when Gary was a great city, there weren't any much activity in suburbs. There wasn't a suburbia. You know, you have people who live way out of any big city now that drive hours to get into town to work, and then they go back out. So, you know, it's just part of a general thing that happened all over the country. When I was a kid, it was a, a big, bustling city, active, many department stores downtown. You know, I think the times changed. The mill went down. Um, people started to move out, including the businesses. The, the mall was built out in Maryville, and so a lot of the, built, the businesses left downtown and went to Maryville, and so did the customers. The mill, the U.S. Steel was the largest mill steel producing plant in the world at that time. Now it's uh, maybe a, a quarter of what it was. Much like Detroit's story. You know, I think if you have a city that's like a one-trick pony, like we're all based on the activity in the mill in Detroit with the cars, well, if those, those industries go down, then you're in trouble. Gary's not the only place that that, that, that has happened. The inner cities have been really torn apart in, in a lot of the country. It's not a story unto itself. You know, it's patterns all over, all over the country, I think. One thing happened during the 60s was that the city opened up to African Americans where you could buy a house anyway. There was a lot of redlining going on at the time, and a lot of people were scared out of their homes. I, you know, one thing that I never understood was why people would flee because if you don't flee, nobody can move in. When I grew up, African Americans were relegated to one part of the city or, or another. Things started to expand. There were a number of people fighting for civil rights in, in the area. Glen Park was basically all white and then we had the central districts where black people were, were basically crammed. I remember when I was a kid, uh, there's a park there called Gleason Park, and the park was basically divided in half. And we used one side of the park, and the whites used the other side of the park. And that was some, I, the, the funny thing that I remember about that, the African-American side of the park had this great big swimming pool that we used to use, and the other side of the park had a small wading pool, so none of us were dissatisfied with <laughs> with that from my side of the city. There are a lot of undercover things that we suffer that nobody ever knows about. Like when, when I was going to Frable, which was a pre predominantly black school that had some whites and, and Latin Americans in the school, but we would get the books from the white schools, you know, after they had used them. You know, things like that, subtle kinds of things that nobody hears about. You know, there's all, all kinds of ways to have racism that don't have to be blatant. Music's always been a major part of my life. Once I, actually, my parents, there was a theater in Chicago called the Regal Theater. And when I was growing up, as early as two years old, I can remember going over to the Regal and seeing people like Duke Ellington and Count Basie and all the top jazz people, Sarah Vaughan, all the top jazz people as I grew up. I went to Pulaski School and had lots of neighbors, and we played up and down the street, and it was a nice neighborhood. I was telling my wife how we rode our bicycles, and we rode miles away from the neighborhood and didn't have to worry about anything. We'd go over 
the back of the school and play in the dunes and come back with our socks full of sand. And it actually was a nice atmosphere there. We lived upstairs on the second floor of my godmother's house, actually. The, p the piano actually was given to me by another godmother that I had. So we got the piano, and my mother said, well, you'll be taking piano lessons. Okay, you know. But the piano was, was on the front porch where I could look out and see everybody running up and down the street playing. <laughs> so after the newness of it wore off, you know, and people would come to the, the front, can Billy come out, you know? When I first started lessons, my mother would sit there and watch me practice, and she had these toothpicks, and so the music teacher would say, you have to practice this 10 times. So she had these toothpicks, and she'd move, every time I played the passage, she'd move a toothpick over, you know? So the deal was that I was gonna practice every day for an hour, no matter what. And this friend would come over, and he'd be sitting there because he wanted to go out and play. <laughs> and I can remember him saying, can you hurry up? You know what I'm saying? There's no way to hurry up an hour. It is what, <laughs> what it is. <laughs> uh, but um, I tell people now, you know, I've never seen anybody make a dime playing hide-and-seek. Eventually, I grew to love it. You know, I, I'd be at the piano for four hours and not, not one, you know. I really didn't actually learn how to play jazz until actually I got out of college and started rubbing elbows with other people who actually played the music. And I learned from them and kind of on the job training, really. I had a, a trio, then I had a quartet, and then I formed a band that had five pieces. And we were, at that time, there were about 30 different clubs in Gary where you could go from one spot and play in the next weekend. You could play someplace else in the next week weekend somewhere else, and we would actually, uh, on our breaks, run from one club to the other to listen to another guy play and then come back and play some more. So that's really how this all got started. The thing is about jazz is that we have access to it. There's some things that some minorities don't even have access to. The symphony was something that we didn't have equal access to. You know, so you couldn't prove your metal there. But, but jazz, you always could. It was, it's one of the, I guess, racial forerunners in it because there have been mixed bands since, since when? Whether you're white or black, once you hit the bandstand, then you're on your own. You know, and that's another thing that I like about it. If you can play, you can play. If you can't, you know, you can't. And, and it's obvious to everybody. And I guess it's the same way in sports. It's, it's an equalizer. Once here at the university, we played with a guy named Red Rodney. He was a white guy that played with Charlie Parker. He was telling us the story of when they went down south, he had to be billed as out, he had red hair, so he had to, in a kind of a light complexion, so they billed him as albino red, you know, because they didn't, mixed bands couldn't travel the south. When Duke Ellington went south, he rented a set of Pullman cars and the guys would just travel the south. They wouldn't do hotels. Blacks couldn't stay in the, the regular hotels. So he just, they worked off of the Pullman cars. Well, there's a jazz musician named Clark Terry who we also had at the festival. And he had played in this band that used to go down to Carroll, Illinois. And my mother used to see that band. And he played in Duke Ellington's band for about nine years. And so 
I was riding in the car with him and I was saying, I know you used to play in Eddie Randall's band and you guys used to go down to Carroll and play. And he said, oh yeah, that's, that's that city where the guy came up on the bandstand and cut Duke Ellington's tie in half. Those are the kinds of things that used to, you know, can you imagine a man of Duke Ellington's stature having something like that happen? My take on the whole thing is that all of the races on the planet were put here by God. All of us have different takes on things. If, if everybody would work together, you know, my strength might help you and your strength might help. It's like a puzzle, you know. All the pieces of the puzzle can't be the same. You know, they have to be different. And I, I think the differences are, are really a strength. You know, if we would would look at it that way. I mean, I don't see why you would want to be by everybody that's just like you. You know, if everybody were like me, it might be kind of sad, you know. <laughs> I need somebody that plays the saxophone. I don't need a bunch of piano players. When somebody tells you you have cancer, you'll try anything. You know, if somebody says walk around with an egg on your head and this, Period. I might be ha wearing a hat, but I'll have the egg, you know. <laughs> well, originally I was diagnosed with uh, renal cell carcinoma back in 1996, which is the name for kidney cancer. And so I had the kidney removed in 1996, and it was thought that it all was gone. Somehow in 2007, it turned up in my lungs and liver and some in my brain. And so that particular cancer has no cure. And the best that you can do is to keep it stable. And if you can do that, you can be okay. Attitude has a lot to do with, with your health. I think music helps, helps me in that way, having something to look forward to and having something else to think about even, because I'm writing a lot and I'm playing a lot. And uh, I have those things on my, I'm not sitting around moaning and groaning about I have cancer. I feel like I've gotten a, a shot across the bow here and I better get moving, you know, because I might not be. And so the things that I have that I want to do, and I have lots of things that I want to do, I don't have any days that I can waste. And, you know, and I feel fortunate in that manner. You, you know, you might go out and get hit by a car right now and not have that warning, you know, so some of the projects that you intended to do next year might not get done. If you have it in the back of your mind that every day is precious and some things you might not get done, then you get busy doing some of the things that, you, that are important to you. I feel that we all are put here for certain things to do. And I think mine is music, you know, and if I can make people happy, and if I can leave some pieces behind that'll make, make people happy listening to them even after I'm gone, and I think that's important. It's a great feeling to, to compose music. I, I feel like it's, it's great when you hear back what, what you've composed. I think everybody has a talent, and that I feel somewhat like, a, a, like all these things are floating around and being transmitted by, by the Creator, and, and we all are like radios, and all of us are tuned to whatever channel we tune into and some can pick up this thing 
Like, I, I, I'd be no good at math, I'm afraid. But somebody's tuned to the math station, and they can get that. I, I happen to be tuned to the music station, and I can pull that in, you know. Plus, I think music has a, a spiritual aspect to it. And uh, there's some people that are even experimenting with certain intervals can cure certain things, you know, certain sounds can cure certain things. I think if I find the interval that cures cancer, I'm going to be pounding on that. Uh, <laughs> all the rest of my compositions will be based around that. <laughs> Audience will be saying, that sounded like the last thing he played. <laughs> but at any rate, you know, I think the music is, is very helpful.